bored at work? Your imagination needs stimulation? Don't hit that touch screen. You're listening to the Mutual Audio Network. Stick around. The following audio drama is rated R and is recommended restricted for anyone under the age of 17. The following presentation is a production of 63 Audio and the Narada Radio Company, a proud member of the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama contains adult themes and is rated R. Listeners under the age of 17 should listen only with the consent and in the presence of an adult. Continuing our third season of Outstanding Audio Dramas, this is Pulp Puri Theatre, starring the Narada Radio Company. Adapted from the best pulp in the world, welcome to Pulp Puri Theatre, starring the Narada Radio Company. Tonight, The Medici Boots by Pearl Norton Sweat. Good evening. Tonight, we present an eerie tale centered around a beautiful woman and a cursed pair of boots. Yes, we know that the relationship between a woman and her footwear tends to border on the spooky, but that's not quite what we're referring to here. Our tale for tonight, The Medici Boots, was written by Pearl Norton Sweat, and it appeared in the August-September 1936 issue of Weird Tales magazine. This magazine tended to specialize in thrilling supernatural stories, that didn't mind a little sex thrown in, and tonight's tale, The Medici Boots, is no exception. We tell you this calmly and sincerely, so if you frighten or get offended easily, we ask you to turn off this program now. And now, here's our announcer, Lisa Ayala, to tell you a little bit more. Our story, for the most part, is set in 1935. It takes place in a palatial home on the Hudson River, in upstate New York. But the tale really begins in 15th century Italy, when the sinister Medici dynasty held sway over Florence and Tuscany. We'll be happy to explain more after this brief word. You're listening to Pulpery Theater, starring the Narada Radio Company. At long last, Repellent Pictures brings you the exciting sequel to Snakes on a Plane. It's my job to handle life and death situations on a daily basis. Samuel L. Jackson reprises his role as FBI agent Neville Flynn, but he's not flying the unfriendly skies this time. Well, that's good news. Grounded for an indefinite period for hysterical ophidiophobia, Agent Flynn is heading back to Washington, D.C. via public transportation on the open road. It's what I do, and I'm very good at it. But this trip ain't all it's cracked up to be. Enough is enough! 
I have had it with these mother yeah. roaches on this mother yeah. bus. Cockroaches on a bus. Coming soon from Repellent Pictures. Welcome back to the Medici Boots, Pearl Norton Sweat's Tale of the Supernatural. Tonight's episode of Pulpourri Theatre, starring the Narada Radio Company. Let's go back now to of my private museum are yours to do with as you see fit. I might suggest you contact the Antiquarian Society as they've expressed an interest in quite a few of the pieces in the past. One thing, however, which I do insist upon regards the Medici boots. These boots, made of ivory leather, threaded with silver, appliqued with sapphire and scarlet silks, and with a pale amethyst set at the tip of each, must either be destroyed or put forever under glass in a public museum. I prefer that they be destroyed, for they are a dangerous possession. They have been witness to vile scandal, adultery, rape, and murder. They were cursed by the church as trappings of the devil, inciting the wearer to foul deeds and intrigue. I shall not disturb you with all their hideous history, but I repeat, they are... They are a dangerous possession. I've taken care to keep them under lock and key, behind plate glass, for more than fifty years. I have never taken them out. Destroy the Medici boots, John, before they destroy you. (sighs) But John, dear, he did take them out. Martha the housekeeper said Uncle Silas was holding the boots when... When she found him in the museum. Yes, I know, Suzanne. Perhaps he was preparing to destroy them right then. Of course, I think the poor old fellow took things a bit too seriously. But he was very old, you know. And Martha says he practically lived at that private museum of his. And why call a pair of old boots dangerous? Of course, we all know the Medicis were plenty dangerous, but the Medici boots? That's ridiculous, John. Don't you agree, Eric? I... And besides... Besides, my dear sister-in-law? Besides, I'd like to try on those Medici boots just once. I think they're lovely. Eric, I think Uncle was getting ready to destroy those boots. That very morning he died. Else, why should he have taken them from their case after 50 years? Yes, I believe you're right, John, because that note he wrote you was dated a full month before his death. I think he worried over leaving those boots to one he cared for. 
poor old man. No, I wouldn't call him that, Eric. Uncle Silas realized his dreams of adventure far more fully than most men. I... I think I'll do as he asks. I'll destroy the Medici boots. Ah. Yes. Yes, I'd better do it. We'll be getting back to town in a few days. Uncle's lawyer, old Erskine, is coming down this afternoon. And soon, Susie and I will be on the wing. Vienna, Paris, the Alps, all thanks to Uncle. <laughs> Maybe you think I'm not glad of my own share of the estate. And the chance to continue my education at Johns Hopkins. <laughs> Ah, that was a perfect dinner. I'm so glad we chose to dine al fresco here on the terrace. So am I, Eric. What a beautiful night. So many stars. We hardly need these two little lamps on the table. Don't you think so, Mr. Erskine? Mm. John, darling, what's that little book you have? Hmm? Oh, this? Just a little history of the Medici boots? I found it in the little wall safe in Uncle's museum. After all he said about the boots, shall I read it to you? What about the boots? Are these the same ones Silas was holding when he was, uh, found? Yes, Mr. Erskine. You see, he left a letter explaining that the boots were dangerous and should be destroyed. <laughs> Most collectors seem to acquire an exaggerated sense of the supernatural. Read it. By all means, it should prove interesting. Yes, yes read, read it, John. <laughs> In the palace of Giuliano de' Medici, I have lived long. I am an old woman now, as the years, the are, years reckoned are reckoned in this infamous, in this infamous place. place. Though, Though I, I am but fifty, fifty and three. Separated from my betrothed, sold into the marble labyrinth of this hateful palace. My spirit soon broke, and I went forth, bejeweled and attired in elegance, among the silk-clad Florentines. I was soon accepted as the most beautiful mistress of any of the Medici, hated by the others, even as they fawned upon me for favors. But in my heart always lay the memory of my lost love, and in my soul grew hatred black and hot for the Medici and all their kind. The villains lost no time in making me a tool of their infamy. From an old hag in her hole of a room on a filthy street, I learned the terrible secrets of the black arts, and I found it amusing that she was paid in Medici gold. This corruption the bred fear in the hearts of the Medici bred in me a sort of reckless bravery. It was I who poisoned the wine of their enemies. I who pushed the point of a dagger into the heart of the old prince, whose lands and riches were coveted by my master. Soon, bloodshed and deceit became second nature to me and I earned the friendship of the ladies of the household. 
It was through this friendship that I devised my plan of revenge on those who have ruined my life. I would present them with three gifts, objects of exquisite beauty that I had cursed using my newfound knowledge of devilish lore. The first object, a necklace of jeweled links, would tighten on the soft throat of a Medici lady as she slept. The second, a bracelet of filigree and sapphires had a silver needle hidden within to pierce the vein in a lady's white wrist, so that her life's blood would spurt and let her know the saving terror that the House of Medici gave to its enemies. Last, <laughs> and most ingenious, a pair of creamy boots, soft and pliable, embroidered in silver and silks, and encrusted with amethysts, which were my betrothal jewels. In my hatred, I cursed the boots, willing that the wearer would kill as I have killed, poison as I have poisoned, leave all thoughts of home and husband, and live in wantonness and evil. I have lived to see my three gifts received and worn. I have laughed in my soul to see my curses bring death and terror and evil to three Medici women. I know that the curses will cling to these objects until they are destroyed, so I pray that none but a Medici woman may ever wear them. My story ends here, and I swear it is true. And when this book is found, and I am long dead and in hell, <laughs> I shall know it and be glad. I shall know it and be glad. Signed. Signed. Maria Modena, Maria Modena di Cavori. Florence, 1476. Who? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, this is a translation. But I don't suppose this charming history would have been any more thrilling if I had read it in the original Italian. Now more than ever. What did you say, Eric? Now more than ever, I hope you will destroy those boots. Not before I find out if the Medici lady had a smaller foot than I. Are they still in the museum, John? Never you mind, my dear. They're not for the likes of you. Oh, don't be silly, John. This is 1935, not the 15th century. <laughs> chatting about old Uncle Silas. They think I've gone to bed, but I must see those Medici boots or I'll simply bust. Now, where are they? I don't dare switch on the lights. They'd see it across the way and know exactly what I was up to. Here, I'll risk a match. Now, where? Oh, here you are, you darlings. Just look at you. So beautiful. Okay, lights out. And back to my room we go.
say. Look at that, will you? Why, I'd swear I just saw a light flash in the museum. You locked it, didn't you? Of course. The key's in my desk upstairs. Hmm. I could swear I saw a light shining there just a moment ago. Reflection from the living room window, I think. Country life is making you jittery, John. <laughs> You're listening to Pulpourri Theatre and the Narada Radio Company's presentation of Pearl Norton Sweat's thrilling story, The Medici Boots. We'll be back with Act Two of our play in just a moment. Hi friends, that familiar theme means it's time again for another visit from Bix Bixby and his art players. Hello Bix, welcome back to the Narada Radio Microphone. What book will you be reviewing for us today? Thank you. We always enjoy coming here and bringing enlightenment to the masses. Today we will be dramatizing a scene from the best-selling book of 1959, Dr. Zhivago by Boris Pasternak. Another inspired choice, Bix. Dr. Zhivago has sold millions of copies since its release and was made into a blockbuster hit film starring Omar Sharif in the title role. I'm sure our listeners can't wait to hear the scene you've selected today. Well, I'm sure you're right. Now, this scene takes place in a wagon train on the Great Plains of Kansas during the westward expansion. It's terrifically exciting. (laughs) Uh, a wagon train? In Kansas? But Dr. Zhivago was set in Russia, wasn't it? <sighs> oh, well. I think you're kind of in a rut, Bix, but I see your art players are already standing by and ready, so go ahead. All right. I know you and your listeners will love this, so here now, a scene from Dr. Zhivago by Boris Pasternak. Morning, Captain. Uh, good morning to you, Scout. What news do you have about what's up ahead? Well, Captain, I've just come from over the next rise, and now don't go losing your temper, boss. About five miles from here is a lake as big as anything. Why, you no good. Whoa, Captain, take it easy. Up on your feet, Scout, and talk to me with the respect due the captain of this here wagon train, if and you please. Now, what's this nonsense about a lake? Um, yeah, Captain. Looks like we'll have to drive around it, and that'll put us behind by a week or so. Why, you no good... Ugh, wait a minute, Captain. I'm only telling you what I saw. I'm losing my patience, Scout, with your disrespectful tone. Way I see it, if we go around that lake you say is thar, it'll put us behind schedule, maybe a week or so. Well, yeah, Captain, that's what I said. I guess the heavy rains last week collected there and overflowed the banks, and- Why, you no good- Oh, Captain, wait, it ain't my fault. All right. 
Okay, you can stop now. How you can dare to call this a scene from the famous novel of the Russian Revolution is beyond my reckoning. What are you talking about? I thought that was simply spine-tingling. Wasn't it spine-tingling? Yes, I can honestly say it gave me strange sensations. Congratulations, Bix Bixby. Once again, you've spoiled a classic novel for our listeners. And I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this segment. Let's go back to our regularly scheduled program. Let's return to The Medici Boots by Pearl Norton Sweat. Just before the break, Suzanne had sneaked into the private museum and acquired the mysterious boots, said to be under a curse, and had taken them up to her bedroom. Now, a few hours later, Eric awakes with a feeling of clammy apprehension. He hears a noise and peers through the gloom to see his bedroom door slowly opening. A woman's hand, small and white and jeweled, is clasped around the edge of the door, pushing it open. Who is it? <gasps> Suzanne? Is it you? What's the matter? Are you sleepwalking? You must be. <laughs> you could catch cold in that flimsy thing you have on, Susie. My dear, let me take you to John, shall I? No, not John. You. I want you, Eric. What? Give me your hand. Touch me. Here. Yes, mm, squeeze it. Your other hand, feel how much I want you here. Yes, I want you. I give myself to you, Eric. Take me. Mm. Mm. Oh. Suzanne, wait. Oh. You cannot lie to me, Eric. Your body does not lie. I feel your body telling me the truth. Give it to me. Uh, 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 no! Stop! You're my brother's wife! You don't know what you're doing! <laughs> Your brother's a fool! And I'm a fool for marrying him when it is you I've wanted all this time. And I've seen the lust in your eyes, and I feel the lust now pressing against me, and... Uh, inside me, Eric! Yes! Oh, oh. Oh, Suzanne! No! I can't. I'm, I mustn't. Get off me. Ugh. Now, please, Suzanne, go back to... No! Look at me. Take this body. It is for you. No! No! no. Suzanne. You must go back to your room. John is my brother. You're his wife. This, this isn't right. There. Come with me. Back across the hall. Ow, my hand! You scratched me, you... (laughs) (laughs) I'd better get back to bed. 
And I'm locking my door this time. There. Good Christ, what came over Suzanne? Oh, my hand, it's bleeding pretty badly. She wore the Medici boots. She must have taken them from the museum. The Medici boots. Good morning, Eric. How are you, old boy? Sleep well? Oh, why so solemn? Feeling seedy? No, no, I, I'm perfectly all right. Um, Suzanne, not coming down? No, she seemed to want to sleep a while. Sent her regrets. She'll see us at lunch. Say, brother of mine, I'm surprised I don't look like you this morning. Had the devil of a nightmare last night. Thought a woman in a long, sheer dress came into my room and tried to stab me. This morning I found that a glass on my bed table was overturned and broken. And by George, I'd cut my wrist on it. Here, take a look, Dr. Eric. Hmm. Well, it's not too deep, but you might have bled to death had it been a quarter of an inch to the left. Let's get it wrapped up, eh? Had to get out of the house, go for a ride, do something. Couldn't bear the thought of facing Suzanne after what happened last night. John absolutely must destroy the boots today, as he said he would. <laughs> it's silly, really, to feel that a curse would ever... That cut on John's arm. I'm doctor enough to recognize a knife wound when I see it. No broken glass did that. Was that Suzanne as well? It's nearly noon. I'd better head back for lunch. I wonder which Suzanne I'll see when I arrive. The strange, seductive one of last night, or the sweet, lovely one I've always known. Oh, there he is. Eric! Eric, here we are, dear. Look, Kitty, our brother is here. Isn't that wonderful? Hello, everybody. Eric, dear, you're just in time for lunch. Are you famished from your ride? When they told me you'd gone riding, I could have kicked myself for sleeping in. It's such a beautiful day. Didn't I say that, John, darling? Yes. Yes, I did. I said, it's such a beautiful day, and I've been a horrible sister-in-law for sleeping it half away. <laughs> Am I not simply horrible, Eric, dear? Well, I... Oh, what a scatterbrain! <laughs> Just look at the perfectly darling creature I found by the stable, Eric. A tiny Maltese kitten. The poor little thing all by itself. Well, I simply had to rescue it, didn't I? Yes, you are a darling, aren't you, kitty? Yes, you are. Shall we all go into lunch? Yes, I think we shall. You certainly seem to have worked up an appetite with all that chatter. Now, John. Suzanne kept up her rapid-fire chatter all throughout lunch, in between bites and sharing little morsels with the kitten in her lap. She was exactly like the sweet, happy Susie I'd known for years. And I began to feel a great fool, and wondered desperately if it hadn't all been a dream the night before. But then I looked down at the three long, red scratches on my hand, put there by the furious Suzanne in that hour before dawn. I looked across the table at the bandaged wrist of my brother, 
his wound so near the vein, and I shuddered. After lunch, I declined John's invitation to wander through Uncle's museum, but said in a half-hearted warning, "'While you're there, John, you'd better get rid of the Medici boots. Creepy things to have around, I think.' "'Oh, they'll be destroyed, all right. But Suzanne is just bound to try them on. I'll get them, though, and do as Uncle said.' "'Eric, there you are. Look!' With my own fair hands, I've made individual almond tortonis for our dessert this evening. Cook things, I'm a wonder. See? Each masterpiece in its own fluted silver dish, with silver candy sprinkled on the pink whipped cream. Yummy! <laughs> <laughs> You're nothing but a little girl, Susie. But it's sweet of you to go to such trouble on a warm afternoon. I'll see you and the whatever you call them's at dinner. <laughs> Tortonis, Eric. Tortonis. <laughs> Susie trotted happily back to the kitchen, and I went up to my room, thinking that there were more questions than answers in this old house. Twenty minutes before dinner, John and I were on the terrace, waiting for Suzanne, and it was a good thing John was talkative, or he might have noticed my stony silence. I was torn between a desire to tell him my suspicions concerning the boots and Suzanne, and an inclination to just leave things alone until the boots were destroyed. John, does Suzanne have those... those boots? <laughs> Why, yes. I saw them in her room. Do you know she went down to the museum last night and took them? <laughs> well, Susie has ideas about the boots. Wants to wear them just once, she says. To lay to rest old what's-her-name Maria Modena. She said she couldn't sleep much last night. Got up early and tried on the boots. Well, I think that history of the boots was just a little too much for Susie. She seems to have swallowed it as much as Uncle did. Of course. His letter showed that. But Suzanne lives in the present, not the past. Still, she must have her way or she won't be satisfied. John, I don't think Suzanne ought to have the Medici boots. What? Why, I never suspected you of being superstitious, Eric. But do you really think that... I don't know what I think. But if she were my wife, John, I'd take those boots away from her. Uncle may have known what he was talking about. Well, she's planning to wear them at dinner, so prepare to be dazzled. Oh, here she is now. <laughs> Hail, Empress! This is the gown you got in Florence on our honeymoon, isn't it? And you extend your beautiful hand to me to kiss, do you? Very well. If you want to go regal on me. Ugh. Release me. Oh, Eric. There you are. I feel as if I've not seen you all day. Hello, Suzanne. I see, Susie. What's going on? Suzanne had snatched her hand away from John's grasp, and her haughty expression turned to one of pleasure, like a physical caress, when she saw me. I couldn't bear to witness the effect it had on my brother, whose face collapsed in pain and bewilderment. Suzanne laid her hand on mine and crushed her soft breast against my upper arm. She sat in the chair I was holding and, before I could step aside, pulled me down into the one beside hers. No al fresco dining tonight. There's rain on the way. 
pretty good storm, I'd say. Mm, I like it. <laughs> Since when, sweetheart? You usually shake and shiver through a thunderstorm. And if I should lose my bravery, you would take care of me, wouldn't you, Eric? What? I... Dinner is served. Let's go in, then, shall we? Susie, will you take my arm? Eric, will you escort me? I clumsily offered her my arm, and we entered the dining room ahead of John, whose face by now had lost all trace of his earlier bright spirits. You're listening to Pulpourri Theatre and the Narada Radio Company's presentation of Pearl Norton Sweat's story, The Medici Boots. We'll be back with Act 3 of our play in just a moment. Well, the 2016 National Day of Apathy has been approved by Congress. A nationwide effort to set up marches, carnivals, and informational fairs in major cities has been put forth. So you can stay home and ignore them. The President of the United States will probably address the nation from the Rose Garden. Eh, or someplace. So make sure you turn on your TV and leave the room so you can catch only a few words here and there. So remember, or not, the National Day of Apathy. (sighs) You didn't tell him when it was. I don't care. This segment of Pulpery Theater is brought to you by the Kung Fu Movie Drafthouse. Screening cheesy martial arts films in a dark, smoky bar 24 hours a day. The Hooray Television Network, now showing the hit reality series, The Real Lunch Ladies of PS165. And coming soon from Repellent Pictures. She's part spider, part snake, and all badass politician. From the people who brought you Triskaidekaphobia, she's... Arachno-Anacondaliza. And now, back to our show. Welcome back to Pulpery Theatre and the Medici Boots by Pearl Norton Sweat, starring the Narada Radio Company. Eric Delameter takes up the story again. During dinner, John tried to revive the lagging conversation, but... Suzanne responded in a staccato voice, and her words seemed strange, as if she were first translating her own thoughts from a foreign tongue. At last, however, the servant brought out the dessert Suzanne had made for us, and I saw a chance to make the talk more cheerful. 
Johnny, your wife's a chef. Did you know that? A famous pastry chef. Behold the work of her own dainty hands. What did you say these were, Susie? These? Oh, I do not know what they are called. But this afternoon as you were leaving the kitchen, didn't you say they were um, almond tortoises or something? Perhaps they are. I would not know. The servant placed the tray with the silver dishes in front of Suzanne that she might sprinkle the delicate silver candies on top. Suzanne daintily spooned the tiny bubbles over the pink whipped cream. But then, why was I not surprised to see one of her hands, with a deft skill, sprinkle a fine pink powder over the top of one of the dishes, a powder that nearly disappeared against the pink cream? I sat with mute fascination as she then distributed the dishes, giving to John the one with the mysterious powder. I rose on the verge of saying something when... <laughs> well, look who's here. It's our wee beastie. Come to see its mistress, no doubt. Hello, puss. Careful, Susie. The sheer fabric of your gown won't stand up to even a kitten's claws. Ugh. Get away from me, you filthy thing. Suzanne, how could you? Come here, puss. Yes, how terrible. Why, its little heart is beating like a trip hammer. I don't understand, Suzanne. Oh, yes, puss. That's better. I've got you. You want a little treat? Of course you do. I've got just the thing. Here, I'll put a little bit just for you on this leaf. A bit of this sweet, pink whipped cream. You'll like this, won't you, puss? Here, I'll set you down on the floor. And here's your little treat. So gobble it up, puss. Hmm, yes. Look, everybody. It's like a little greedy piggy, isn't it? What? <gasps> Suzanne! They've gone out! Don't be afraid, Suzanne. Stay where you are. I'll find you, dear. The sudden painful death of the orphan kitten was immediately forgotten as John's concerned voice called out in the dark. Suzanne's fear of storms I knew was genuine, or rather the old Suzanne's was. This new Suzanne seemed to be afraid of nothing, not even murder. Wordlessly, I had sat and watched John give the powder-laced cream to the kitten while Suzanne's eyes had been fixed on my face, her fingers toying with her bracelets, a slight smile on her red lips. I'd known something was about to happen. But if it happened to the kitten first, I knew also it might not happen to John. I turned a full circle, trying to peer through the darkness to find my brother and his wife. Suddenly a bright lightning flash lit up the room, and in that split second, I saw Suzanne struggling in her husband's arms, one jeweled arm uplifted, and in her hand, a shining dagger. Almost without thinking, I crossed the room and struck at the knife in Suzanne's hand. 
It fell from her grasp and was lost in the darkness. And as though the fury of the storm and Suzanne's madness both were spent, the slashing rain and the thunder stopped abruptly, and my brother's wife ceased to struggle. Light the candles, Eric! Quickly! Suzanne is hurt! In the pale candlelight, I saw Suzanne slumped limply in John's arms. The hem of her long golden gown was stained with red, and one of the cursed boots was quickly becoming soaked with blood from a slash across the instep when the knife had fallen from her hand. Eric, help me get her over to the window seat and then do something for her. Oh, sweetheart, you're going to be just fine. Please don't. Shh. Don't cry. You're going to be fixed up by Dr. Eric and... I'll take a look. John, take those damned boots off her. She'll she'll be herself then. I mean, she'll be... She'll be Suzanne, not a murderess of the Medicis. John, are you listening? Take the boots off her feet. They're at the bottom of this. You mean... I mean those hellish boots have changed your wife from a sweet and lovely girl to... Well, do as I tell you, and I'll be back in a minute with my bag. While the wet leaves tapped against the windows and the stars struggled through the clouds, I worked on Suzanne, silently, grimly, by the light of a flashlight held in John's unsteady hands and the light of the flickering candles. There. She's all fixed up. Shh. I think she's asleep. Thank you, Eric. Where are the boots? I threw the blasted things over there in the corner. When she awakes, John, I shouldn't tell her about any of this if I were you. But there are things you haven't told me, aren't there, Eric? About the Medici boots, and how they affected Suzanne. (sighs) Yes, John. And after I've told you, old boy, those boots must be destroyed. We'll burn them before the night is over, eh? Let's leave Suzanne here to rest, and go out on the terrace. It's wet out there still, but the air is fresh. Some of this is going to be hard to hear, John, but I'll tell you everything. Wait, did you smell something peculiar? No? Well, come on. As John and Eric passed the spot where the once beautiful boots lay, now slashed and blooded, Eric could have sworn that there came to him a horrid odour, fetid, hotly offensive the odour of iniquity and ancient, bloody death. You have been listening to The Medici Boots, the fifth episode of Pulpery Theatre's third season, starring the Narada Radio Company. Featured in the cast were Derek Lutz as the newscaster, Peter M. Howard as John Delameter, Eileen Corpos as Suzanne Delameter, Jean Giggy as Erskine, Alex Moore as Maria Modena and the servant, and Pete Lutz as Uncle Silas Dickerson and Eric Delameter. Your announcer was Lisa Ayala. The Medici Boots was originally published as a short story by Pearl Norton Sweat 
and appeared in the August-September 1936 issue of Weird Tales magazine. It was adapted by Pete Lutz, who also directed and produced this program. Now, here's Pete to tell you about our next episode. Next time on Pulpery Theater, we present an original play that stands as the brother to our previous episode, The Time Cutter, which was also written by me way back in 2001. It's been dug out of the trunk and specially revised for Season 3, called The DNA Pit. It's a futuristic tale that deals with science, greed, and power. We hope you'll join us for that, and until then, this is Pete Lutz reminding you to call me if your situation changes and to keep your ears clean. Special thanks to Sarah Golding for providing some much-needed last-minute announcements. Our special features cast included Christy Glick in The Cockroaches on a Bus Trailer, Pete Lutz, Nick Womack, and Austin Hanna in the Bix Bixby Book Review Sketch, Kevin Schuster as the National Day of Apathy announcer, and Melody Gaines as the Brought to You By announcer. All commercials for fictitious products and special features are conceived and written by Pete Lutz. In case you hadn't already noticed, our music for this production was selected because it originated either in the 15th century or in 1935. The episode theme was Gelosia, a 15th century Italian dance performed by Ernest Stoltz. Other historical music from that period was performed by Paul Odette on the lute and came from several different composers. 1935 music included Alone by Arthur Freed and Nacio Herb Brown, sung by Kitty Carlisle. Easy to Remember by Richard Rogers and Lawrence Hart, sung by Bing Crosby. Isn't This a Lovely Day to Be Caught in the Rain by Irving Berlin, sung by Fred Astaire. And Concerto No. 2 by Sergei Prokofiev, Movement 2, Andante Asai. The Pulpery Theatre theme was written and performed by Rich Wentworth. Opening announcers, Gene Lutz and Rich Wentworth. Be sure to listen to our previous episodes of Pulpery Theater. You can find us online by Googling 63 Audio. Spell it with the number 6, the number 3, and the word audio. Trust me, it's easier that way. The preceding production was sourced from materials in the public domain, except where indicated. The audio play script and the production itself are original works and are the property of their creator, and thus protected by copyright. This has been a 63 Audio production. Sixty-three audio. Buongiorno. I am Flaudio, and I am very interested in what makes audio drama work. I want to share with you my recipe for a perfect evening. An evening for two lovers. Lovers of audio drama. When I plan an audio drama, I want to make sure that everything is perfect for us. The soundscape is the most important thing to set the mood for the night. When I lay in a special ambiance or sound effect, it is very important because it can express what I feel so perfectly. A sound effect can speak for the story when words just cannot capture the love I feel. 
love I feel for you. When it is dark, I turn on the sound effects. I turn up the soundscape. And the voices can then dance in a perfect state of bliss, where there is no world except the one we make with our love. No time except what is needed for our story to play out. A story that we will make come true. This audio drama public service announcement was brought to you by the Amigos. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.